Think about this. If we tear out Esther out of the Bible this morning, literally, don't do it now, and replace every occurrence of the word Jews with some other ethnic group, okay? And you chuck the book somewhere. When a believer picks it up and reads it, would he think that it is from the Bible? Would he think it is anything to do with God at all? No, because God is simply not mentioned at all in the Bible, uh, in, in Esther. There are no great miracles like in Exodus. There is no vision, no dream, and no prophecies. Nothing. God is simply absent in this book. Now, how does that make Esther fascinating, you ask? Well, because you and I live in a very similar world. We simply can't see any signs of God's presence. As far as I know, it rained this morning, but it didn't rain manna. Neither did the Gombak River at the back of the church suddenly turn into blood. It didn't. So doesn't the mere absence of God in Esther makes it so relevant, so real, and so powerful for us today. It describes life just as we experience it today. So my job today is to teach you Esther, chapter 8 and 9, but I can't teach you 8 and 9 without first of all teaching you Esther. On one hand, we apply this way of reading the Bible to any passages in the Bible. That is, we only understand the parts in light of the whole, and we understand the whole in light of the parts. But particularly so for Esther, because Esther is uniquely self-contained and short. When we read Esther in its entirety, we just get one main point, one sharp punch that the author intended us to receive. So when we cut up Esther like the way that we have been doing, we can easily get lost in the details and wander away from the main point. So there are just two important things about Esther that I want to establish right at the beginning to, for you to keep in mind before we study Esther 8 and 9. Okay? First of all, it's a biblical context and the big question of that time. Well, the history of the Jews can be traced back all the way to the promises that God made to Abraham, that he will bless the world through Abraham, right? And over time, Abraham's descendants became slaves in Egypt. But God rescued them out of slavery and made a covenant with them at Sinai. Eventually, God gave them a land and built a temple in Jerusalem. And this shows that God's blessing and God's presence is with them. So God's promises seem to be making good progresses during that time. But that didn't last long. Israel divided. Northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians. And the Jews that is left in the southern kingdom, they were carried into exile by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. He even destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. Now, all this happened because the Jews sinned and they disobeyed God. They were idolatrous and they were unfaithful towards God. So God's covenant curse, the Deuteronomic curse, came upon them. God raised up the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and then God judged them and God scattered them around the nations. With all this happening, we wonder what happened to God's promises to bless Israel and bless the world. Well, God's judgment didn't come with judgment only, come with a hope of restoration. God promised that a remnant of His people would one day return to Jerusalem. 
And God did materialize that promise historically. He did raise up a Persian empire. He raised up King Cyrus, who came swiftly and conquered Babylon. As a result, he issued a decree which allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem. And now, that is when we arrive at Esther. Post-exile, we know of Ezra and Nehemiah, they talk about how the Jews who returned to Jerusalem, they rebuilt Jerusalem and they rebuilt the temple, right? Esther, on the other hand, talks about the other Jews who are, who are left behind, who chose not to go home but they continue to live in the Persian society. Now, post-exile, the big question for the Jews is this. Are we still God's covenanted people? Is God still with us as He was with our forefathers in the past? And these are difficult questions, especially for Jews, the diaspora Jews. Imagine that they live in a completely pagan society. They look around them, there's no temple, there's no sacrifices. There is no Davidic city, no prophets. All they see is pagan leaders, pagan friends in a pagan society. So is God still at work to fulfill His promises to bless the world through Israel? That's the big question of the time. And the book of Esther seeks to answer that question. And that leads me to the second point, which is how does Esther do that? We have to look at Esther's joint role and structure and the main point of, of Esther. Esther answered this post-exilic question in a very different way compared to the prophets. Esther presents history in the form of a story. It doesn't make it less historical, it just makes it more poetic, and we have to recognize that. Esther is skillfully crafted, it has a skillfully crafted narrative structure. It uses repeated themes and wordplays. There is irony and satire and even humor that we saw last week. The congregation was laughing throughout the whole preaching. And all that to deliver the main point of the message. For example, notice how banquet and feast is repeated theme in Esther. You see feasts around all the time. Not because they are Chinese, but it's a way that it structures a book. Esther is structured around the feast. The word is repeated over 20 times in Esther, whereas it's only 22 times in the, across the whole Old Testament. And it is appropriate because Esther, after all, explains the origin of Purim in chapter 4. That is a feast that is celebrated by Jews even today. But notice that when you read Esther as a whole, Esther is not written to explain to you and I the origin of Purim or what is Purim. Instead, the reason behind celebrating Purim leads us to the main point of Esther. The purpose of the feast is to focus our attention on the sudden turn of events, the reversals of destinies that we have saw, we've seen last week, which in turn invites us to see God's invisible hand that is at work in history. So think about it. At the heart, isn't Esther simply about a story about an event, an event which is intended to harm the Jews, but against all expectations, it resulted in the complete opposite? That's the gist of the story. Instead of being destroyed, the Jews were not only delivered, they were lifted and they were exalted. Haman, the supposed destroyer, was destroyed. 
Mordecai and Esther, the supposed victims, they became victors. As a result, God's chosen people through whom He planned to bless the world, they continued to live. They survived. So sudden turn of events or reversals which characterize the whole book of Esther are used by Esther to assert one main point. And it is this. Beneath the surface of seemingly insignificant, unmiraculous events, God is at work to fulfill His promises and to achieve His purposes. One commentator puts it this way. The complete absence of God from the story is the genius of the whole book. It affirms that even in the most pagan corner of the world, where God seems absent, God is still at work in invisible and mysterious ways through completely ordinary events to fulfill His covenantal promises. God is ruling all things for the benefit of His people and for the glory of His name all the time. So there is no such thing as coincidences in life, It's just God's providence. And that is the gist of Esther. Now, with that big picture of Esther, let us now turn to chapter 8. If you remember, back in chapter 3, it is where the personal conflict began uh, between Mordecai and Haman. And then suddenly, this conflict just turned into a threat of genocide for the Jews. That's bizarre, isn't it? a personal conflict that ended up to be a potential threat for genocide of the whole race. But last week, we saw in chapter 6 and 7, we we saw a sudden reversal of destiny. Haman was killed instead of Mordecai. But however, although Haman is now dead, his death decree that is set against the Jews is already set into motion. It still stands, and the king cannot revoke it, as we can see today. So in chapter 8, Mordecai and Esther plot to counteract this death decree that is against them. And the solution to the dilemma was to write another decree of equal force to counteract the first decree. And this decree basically legalized war. Chapter 8 verse 11 says, The king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their life to destroy and to kill and to annihilate any armed forces of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included. Now, we will deal with the issue of moral rightness, of killing women and children shortly in a sermon, and we also deal with the issue of counter-decree. But before that, notice how chapter 8 contributes to the main point of Esther, namely, though unseen, God is still in control of history. Now, hypothetically, if Haman's plot had succeeded, what would have happened? The Jews would have been wiped out, and the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, wouldn't have been born. God's plan to redeem humanity would have been derailed. But that didn't happen. As the theme of fortune reversal continues in Esther, we see God's providence in preserving the Jews and protecting his salvation plan for the whole world. In chapter 8, we see that Mordecai's decree is an exact reversal of Haman's decree. The destiny that Haman plotted against the Jew 
it turned on against the Jewish enemies and the families. Mordecai, who tore his clothes and put on sackcloth in chapter 4, as he wept and cried over Haman's decree, he now walked with royal garments. The Jews were mourning and fasting and weeping and lamenting earlier. They are now turned into happiness and joy and gladness and feasting and celebration in chapter 8. So chapter 8 makes a point for us again that nothing is random in this world. God is at work through everyday decisions and events for the good of His people and for the glory of His name. Now, with that, let me now talk to you about the two things that chapter 8 incidentally raises for us, even though it is not the main point. The first one is the idea of holy war. This flows up from Mordecai's counter-decree that we saw. The Jews were given the exact instructions as that which was given by Haman against them. That is, they were permitted to kill the children and the wives of their enemies, right? Now, the obvious moral question that arises for us would be, should God's people be involved in the same kind of genocide that had been directed against them by their pagan enemies who didn't know God? Does this passage in Esther approve such form of holy war against God's enemies? Any one of you heard of Baruch Coppel Goldstein? He is an American born in Brooklyn to an Orthodox Jewish family. He studied medicine, then immigrated to Israel as a doctor. One day in February 1994, Baruch celebrated Purim, as described in Esther, in the synagogue. After listening to the annual reading of Esther, he entered a mosque and opened fire. He killed 29 and wounded 130 Palestinian Muslims. The report later revealed that he was trying to reenact the Purim. Where Queen Esther, not satisfied with the first day of killing, went on for another day, killing a total of 75,000 that we saw. So should, how should Christians understand the holy war that we see in Esther? Well, the first thing to say is that such instructions for killing is not unique in the Old Testament. We see a fair bit of God's violence against the nations throughout the Old Testament. These nations are portrayed as sinful and evil, and they deserve God's judgment. But here's the important bit. God's violence was even against His own people in the Old Testament, the people of Israel. Yes, Israel was God's agency of wrath against wicked nations, but when Israel themselves were found wicked, when they disobey God, when they sin and they do evil like the other nations, God's wrath burned against them. God raised up Assyria and Babylon and judged them. It happened. Israel was wiped off. Jerusalem was laid waste. So you see, the essence of holy war in the Old Testament is not about Israel being morally superior compared to other nations. No, God made it very clear in Deuteronomy 8 that Israel is not chosen because they were inherently more righteous than others. They were not. 
Rather, holy war in the Old Testament is about God waging war against sin and evil. The destruction of God's own chosen nation, Israel, shows that God's violence is not directed against certain races or certain nations, but it is against sin and evil wherever it is found. The righteous God has always been at war against sin and evil from the beginning of time, ever since the fall of humanity. So the Amalekites that we saw in Esther is just one manifestation of that enemy. God chose Israel to be his divine agent to execute his wrath, but Israel has always been an imperfect agent. Notice how throughout the whole story in Esther, the writer is silent and ambiguous, almost ambiguous, about Esther and Mordecai's motivation. Were they any better than Haman morally? Did the writer command that? When they finally possessed power, why did they do what Haman have, would have done? Why didn't Esther stop killing after day one? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because the truth is there is no one righteous, not even one. Jews and non-Jews alike all have sinned against God. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Not even a handful of righteous men or women or children could be found. God's judgment fell upon the entire city. When we see God using imperfect Israel to wage war against the Amalekites in Esther, we are meant to see God's relentless commitment to destroy sin and evil. Temple Longman helps us to understand God's violence in the Old Testament in this way. He says this in his book, The violence of God against evil and sin can only be rightly understood in the shadow of the cross. Jesus Christ is the ultimate divine warrior who waged war, the final war, against sin and evil on the cross on behalf of humanity. No one is worthy to wage true holy war in God's name, not even Israel. Jesus Christ is the only true Israelite, righteous and just enough to execute divine justice with clean hands and a pure heart. Another commentator puts it this way, truly human war in human, hist in human history, sorry, truly holy war in human history has ceased because Jesus Christ has fought its last episode on the cross. Sin and evil has been defeated on the cross. The point is, all the violent wars, the holy wars that we see that God waged in the Old Testament against the nations and against sin and evil, they have all found their fulfillment and their climax on the cross where Christ defeated sin and evil and death. So how about us today? In light of the cross, should Christians think about holy war? How should Christians think about holy war? Should we do what Baruch Goldstein did in Palestine? Well, firstly today, God is still committed to fighting sin and evil. He is a righteous and He is a just God. 
But now, God's agent against sin and evil in this world is the church, not nation Israel, but true Israel. Those who by faith in Christ's redeeming work have become part of God's people. Secondly, the ultimate victory is already guaranteed. Jesus had defeated sin and death and evil on Calvary. He rose again and His Spirit dwells in His people to empower them in the war against sin and evil. So today, our war as Christians is no longer physical like that of Israel's in the Old Testament. Our battleground has moved to the human heart where sin and evil dwells. Our weapon is neither swords or guns, but the gospel message. Remember that Esther, in Esther, we see that King Ahasuerus could not simply revoke the first decree, right? No matter how rich and how powerful he is, he cannot undo the decree of death. The only way that a revoke the irrevocable decree of death could be nullified is through a counter-decree of life, a decree that is issued by the same authority, sealed by the same royal signet ring. Now, neither can, the, can God, the King of Kings, simply revoke the decree of death that He has pronounced in the garden against mankind. For all have sinned, none is righteous, not even one, no one seeks God. All deserve death and judgment. A just God cannot simply ignore sin and revoke the decree. But He can, and He has issued a counter-decree. And He has done that, hasn't He? In Christ Jesus. Christ died in the place of sinners. So back to the waging war today, it is through the preaching of that saving gospel that our battle against sin and evil is fought. It is won through winning people one by one, from the dominion of darkness and sin to, to the dominion of light and righteousness, through the preaching of Christ crucified. As a church, the marching order that you and I has received from God for this war is very clear. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That is how the war is fought today. Now, let me say a few things about chapter 9. Here the conflict at the heart of the Esther story comes to a close. D-Day finally arrived, the day that Haman's death decree was meant to, ex to be executed among the Jews. But notice that what was anticipated 11 months ago, what was meant to be an epic and a climatic day, a day of great tension and anticipation and, and drama, turned out to be a rather ordinary day of routine. Chapter 9 reported the day in a rather flat and predictable manner. It is nothing like the Lord of the Rings battle sin. No, all the way right from the start in verse 1, the author already summarized the whole day for us. Verse 1, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped 
to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The table turned. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. And from here on, the rest of the verses, the rest of the chapter is just a matter of ceremony. And this is because the outcome of the conflict had already been settled before they even arrived on that day. The tables has been turned already. It is as good as done deal. The outcome is guaranteed and the Jews face the day with absolute confidence, knowing how it will turn out. Now that the conflict has been resolved in chapter 9, the Jews have survived annihilation. As a reader, you kind of pause and take a breath to ponder. Wow, what, what just happened there? And how did that happen? So much coincidences that involve dyes and things like that. You could even be wondering, how was God involved in any of this? If he was involved, which bits is he involved? What role did he play if he was involved? Now, because you and I have been reading Esther in its canonical context, as within the whole Bible, and we know a lot about the Bible, of course we say, yes, God is involved. Isn't the main trust of Esther to show us that even though God seemed absent, he is at work providentially to make sure that the Jews don't get annihilated so that his redemptive plan for the world through Israel will be fulfilled, will not be thwarted. That's true, but if you read Esther on its own, if you were to live in Esther's time, living at that moment, without the hindsight that you and I have, it is a legitimate question to ask, how was God involved in all this? Consider this. When Israel first fought against the Amalekites that we saw in Exodus 18, God was explicitly miraculous during that time. Moses raised up God's staff and Israel prevailed. Moses laid down God's staff, up, laid it down, and the enemies prevailed. It was very clear that God was involved. Or during the period of the judges, God explicitly raised up judges to deliver the people of Israel from their enemies. Now, in Esther, God is not mentioned at all. No mention of God's spirit resting on Esther or on Mordecai. No mention of God giving them wisdom as he did for Solomon. Nothing. God was unseen. His intent is hidden, even from the author. Would you have guessed that God was at work through these two Jews, Esther and Mordecai, who aren't particularly devout? Unlike Daniel, they chose to hit their Jewish identity. Would you have thought that God was at work when you see the young Jewish girl went into the harem of a lustful pagan king and she managed to please him in one night more than all the other virgins in the empire? You sure God was at work through morally ambiguous Esther who seemed to exhibit cunningness and manipulations? Well, I think the writer of Esther deliberately leave God's role in the events ambiguous. Perhaps he himself is unsure, but his uncertainty did not bother him at all. The point that he's making is that Israel survived, just as God had said. But how exactly God worked, 
he doesn't know. Now, don't you find Esther's world very similar to our world and our life? Isn't God's seemingly absence true to life as you and I experience it today? Let me end by reading to you a paragraph concerning this aspect of Esther by Job's. As God brings his ancient promise of salvation to fulfillment in individual lives throughout history, we cannot at any moment know the significance of world events or even that of ordinary events of our own private lives. The author of Esther calls us to trust in the power and the presence of God, even when, and perhaps especially when, he seems absent and we cannot imagine, how could he possibly do what he has promised in his word? We are called to live by faith, not by sight. However, that faith is a certainty in the unseen realities lying behind what we do see. We are to live in the knowledge that both our best moments as well as our worst moments in life are all part of what God is doing in us and through us and in the lives of others. We cannot see the end of the matter from the beginning or the middle. The story of Esther assures us that we do not have to. Esther teaches us that beneath the surface of evenly, even seemingly insignificant human decisions and events, an unseen and uncontrollable power is at work that can be neither explained nor thwarted. It's mysterious to you and me. But the one thing that we can be sure and we need to be sure of is this. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rules, nor things present or the things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. And that we can be sure. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we thank you for the book of Esther. We thank you that we can identify so much with the uncertainty of life that it presents. Father, so much of the time that we live, we would like to know exactly how things worked out and where you are at work and how you are at work and where you are leading the situation. Father, we pray that you help us to recognize that we are not God and you are. And we don't need to play God. Instead of being anxious about the situations and trying to have control over it, we can now, Father, in Christ, be rest assured, be, be comforted, knowing that you, you have been in control all this while. Even the gruesome cross where evil seemed to prevail turned out to be the salvation for all mankind. 
that evil and sin has been dealt with. So, Father, we ask that as we continue to reflect on Esther, that your Spirit will bring the truth of your sovereignty to bear in our hearts and bring comfort and confidence in all your people, that we can live with confidence in this world, that regardless of which government is in place, whether it is in our eyes a good or bad government, whether, whether a law is passed that seems to be good or bad in our eyes, we know that you are in control and we know that you will bring everything to a complete good when our Lord Jesus returns. And we can have confidence in that promise that you have made because you are a faithful God who have made promises, you have fulfilled your promises, and you are a sovereign and powerful God who can and who will fulfill those promises. So we thank you that as your church, we can take comfort in you, the true and living God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.